You may hear our uh, four-year-old foster son, Owen, uh, through the service. So he's been having a real hard week. Um, you guys know he was in the hospital for a week and, uh, and then was doing better for a while, and he's, he's having a hard time again. And uh, hopefully this Wednesday he gets another test that, fri- this Friday, thanks, Don, another test that may show something that can be done to help him. Right now it's just hundreds of tests, and we can, can't figure out what to do with them. But we'd appreciate you guys continuing to pray for us for him. Um, he's, uh, he's quite the, the challenge, but he's also quite the, the blessing to us also. So let's pray and uh, we'll dive into God's word. Father, thank you for the, the book of Acts, the, the ninth chapter. Thank you for the way that you uh, chose and saved Saul almost 2,000 years ago and then used him uh, to plant churches all over the Mediterranean region, to write most of the books in the New Testament. Lord, you took a man who was your enemy and you turned him into a great champion of your cause. Lord, I pray that you would work in us this morning. I think of the, the parable that you told of the different uh, types of soil and the seed is scattered on him and, and some soil, some hearts, the, the seed of the word of God takes root and grows to become strong and bear fruit and in other soils it just it withers and dies because the soil is not ready and prepared. And so I ask Lord that there are hard, rocky, thorny, soiled hearts here, Lord, that you'd be working in them to prepare them to, to hear this, this beautiful story of hope and invitation to new life. Lord, work in us this morning, work through your, your scripture to, to change us and to shape us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We started working through the book of Acts last year. We took a break over the last five weeks to focus on a different topic. We're back into Acts, and I cannot give you a summary of what we've done so far. I just don't have time to do that. But here are the basics of what you need to know. The book of Acts is written by Luke, who was a doctor. He's very keen on details. And he is the same Luke who wrote what we call the book of Luke or the gospel of Luke. And you can think of Acts as Luke part two. The book of Luke tells the story of the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And then the book of Acts picks up after that, post-resurrection of Jesus, but right before Jesus ascends into heaven to reign with the Father. That's where the book of Acts starts. And Jesus gives his, his brand new baby Christian church, he gives them a, a commission. He tells them to go out into the world to scatter around the known world, which our, our theme slide at the, right here shows what would have been the known world in the Mediterranean at that time. Go out into all that known world and tell them about Jesus. The good news that Jesus came to rescue, to save sinners. But Jesus said to them, I want you to wait. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit into you. And they would have said, what are you talking about? What, what do you mean? We know now later, looking back on it, so we've got, just like our last song said, we've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, members of the Trinity that we refer to as the Godhead. And amazingly, God decides to indwell, to live inside of those whom he saves. This would be the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says that's coming. And when that happens, you're going to have the power to go out and do the mission that I've given you. So this is how Jesus said it in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. 
And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. If we go to this next image, we've got a map here showing you the first three things. This would be the, the area that we would call Israel. Today would be called Israel or Palestine. You've got the region of Judea. It would be like a county and the capital of Jerusalem, the star there. And then there would be like another county north of it, Samaria. And they were actually bitter rivals, the folks in Judea and the folks in Samaria. And then basically everything outside of that for all of the Mediterranean region is, is the ends of the earth, the rest of the world. Within a few short decades, the message of Jesus, without any modern communication or transportation help, would spread throughout much of the next map here. Let's go to that here. All around Mediterranean. Jesus describes here what we could think of as concentric circles, starting with Jerusalem, where the, the Christian church was born, and they hung out there for a long time, and then widening very quickly through Judea and Samaria, and pausing again, and then for much of the rest of the book of Acts that we'll be studying through, it's taking place outside of those areas in what would be the ends of the earth for these people. If we were to do it as a timeline, it would look like this right now. Acts 1 through 7 is the church in Jerusalem and Judea, immediately surrounding Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 8, we saw it expanding out into more of Judea, but mostly, most notably, into Samaria. Philip goes as a missionary into Samaria. Now we're in Acts 9, and that's the beginning of the end of the earth section. The drama will go out into the Mediterranean. It will come back to Jerusalem a few times, but mostly it's out. The rest of Acts is about the mission and the expansion. What was it that God used to finally get the scared, pulled in on themselves Christian church in Jerusalem to finally go out and start the mission? It was hardship. It was persecution. It was murder. Murder, the martyrdom of Stephen, one of the, one of the early leaders, one of the superstars of the early church. He was murdered. That began a great persecution that scattered the Christians. They're like, we know Jesus gave us a mission to go, but we'd like to stay together. God uses hardship to scatter us to go out on mission. God often uses tragedy and hardship to do great things in and through his people. That was a real encouragement to me this week as I processed this passage. So Stephen had preached a great sermon to the Jewish leaders. They were filled with rage towards him, though, because he was claiming that Jesus was God in the flesh, Jesus, the Son of God. And he was claiming that they were guilty of murdering him, murdering the Messiah, the Savior that they had been waiting for all these years. They missed it, and they, they killed him. And so in their rage, they killed Stephen by pelting him with large stones. A terrible way to die. This is the end of Acts chapter 7, the beginning of Acts chapter 8. It says this, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which is a Bible way of saying that he died. What a terrible way to die pain, the crushing. You just hope that one of those stones hits you in the temple and puts you out of your misery. 
But Jesus was up to something in that terrible moment, and nobody could have imagined what it was. We just met this guy, Saul, standing on the fringe, holding the cloaks, overseeing basically the, the boss of the scene. He is directly overseeing the murder of Stephen. But God is going to utterly transform Saul. He will be unrecognizable. In verse 1 of chapter 8, Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Those would be the 12 closest followers of Jesus. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul is a bad dude, right? It, he's not just being mean and, and doing a, a, some kind of publicity campaign against the church. There's no tweeting or Facebook attacks or anything. He is, according to this passage, he is ravaging the church. It is his goal to destroy the church. And the church is not a building. This is people. It's his goal to destroy people who are followers of Jesus dragging them off, men and women, committing them to prison. Saul is essentially a religious terrorist. In Acts chapter 9, which is our main passage for today, he's going to travel from Jerusalem to the city of Damascus. Now, if you want to find this in a pew Bible, you can find it on page 918. It's Acts chapter 9, 1 through 19. We're going to see Paul take a trip to Damascus. It would be a six-day walk for him. He would travel north from Jerusalem out of the region of Israel into the region of Syria, which is still today called Syria, to the city of Damascus, which is still called Damascus today. Damascus is, uh, is actually a very old city. It is, archaeologically speaking, it's the oldest continually inhabited city in the world. Other cities are older, but this one has been occupied by humans for, as far as we can tell, the longest time in history. It's been around a long time. It was not a Jewish city or territory, but there was a Jewish community there. And some of those Jews in the first century, they had heard the gospel, the good news, that Jesus was the Messiah and he came to save them. And so they embraced Christianity. At that point, Christianity was seen mostly as just a, a subset of Judaism. That would all change with the mission of Saul. But for right now, Saul's going to go to Damascus with official papers from the Jewish high priests in order to hunt down, arrest, and bring back to Jerusalem and imprison anybody that they can find who's a Christian. Acts 9, 1 through 19, page 918 in the Pew Bible. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if you found any belonging to the way, which was the term referring to the early Christian church there, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is weeks or maybe months after the whole stoning of Stephen thing, but how's Saul's heart doing? Has he softened at all? Not at all. He's evil as ever. 
Luke describes Saul as breathing out threats and murder. It's like the, the hatred, the rage, the evil inside of Saul so permeates him. This is who he is, and he just breathing in and out. There's just evil, threats, murder. I think back to Genesis, the, the account of the creation of the first man, and God forms the man of the dust of the earth, and he breathes into him the breath of life. And this is the opposite. This is a man breathing out the breath of death. Some of you are thinking, I know somebody's got breath of death. This is much worse. Imagine Saul scowling, breathing his hatred, huffing, just, just thinking murderous thoughts as he stomps down the Roman road for six days to get to Damascus. With every step he's closer to being able to snatch some of those pesky Christians, put them in prison, hopefully murder them, he can't wait to get there and let his anger loose on the followers of Jesus. What's motivating this wrath, this hatred? He thinks he's serving God. This is really important to understand this story. Paul thinks, I'm sorry, be called Paul later. Saul thinks he is the hero of the story. He believes, and he's got the paperwork from the high priest, he believes he's on a mission from God. He is a religious zealot eager to stamp out what he sees as heresy or corruption, the soiling of the Jewish people. He thinks he's serving God. But there's none of the fruit of the Spirit in this man. Years later, this same man would write Galatians chapter 5, where he would, he would tell us what the fruit of the Spirit is. So if the Spirit of God is living inside of you, what does the Spirit grow? What kind of fruit does he produce in you? This same man, then called Paul, would write these words. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We see none of those in Saul in Acts chapter 9. He believes he's on a mission from God. He believes he's fighting on behalf of God. And yet, you see the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. He is out of control. He is filled with anger and bitterness and rage. And he's filled with falsehood. What he thinks is right is actually wrong. Everything's upside down for him. But he's got a lot of passion. We get to the main event of the story. He's on his way to persecute Christians, followers of Jesus. Jesus himself is going to intervene in a big way. Verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now, if, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, or you have kind of a skeptical worldview, you think, this is just silly. A light knocks him on his rear voice from heaven, what's going on? Well, let me just suggest this. Whatever happened here, whether you believe this or not, this man, who was the chief persecutor of the Christian faith, 
in a matter of days, became one of the greatest missionaries of the Christian faith, church planters of the Christian faith, writers of Scripture. How else do you explain that than some kind of miraculous intervention? It's not that he simply had a change of heart and then made up a dramatic story about it. Something happened here. Imagine how shocking this must have been. Saul's on his mission. He suddenly knocked on his butt. There's a blinding light. There's a voice out of thin air. If he was asleep, he would wake up and think, that was a bad dream. I'm so glad that was just a dream. But it's not a dream. It's the middle of the day, and there are witnesses with him. As shocking as this would be, how much more shocking would it have been for Saul when the voice addresses him by name? He realizes that whatever this is, whoever this is, it has come for him. Saul. Saul. He says it twice, just to make sure, right? You listening, Saul? And then he asks a question, which is an accusation. Why are you persecuting me? How does proud, arrogant Saul respond to this? In humble fear. There is an immediate transformation in Saul. This, he calls this disembodied voice, he, he calls it Lord. Is that just a, a symbol of respect, like in the old days when you refer to somebody as Lord or Master? Or, or is he somehow suspecting that this might be God talking to him? Jesus goes on to introduce himself by name and repeat that Paul is persecuting him. We have to understand the significance of this. Because Saul thinks he's going to persecute Christians. Jesus says, you are persecuting me. If Jesus has saved you, that is, you're born again in Christ, you are a new creation, You have been forgiven. You've been adopted into the family of God. And more than that, in some mysterious way, you are what the Bible refers to as in Christ and Christ in you. You're identified with Jesus in a way that we just, we can't really understand. Now, you're not God, but somehow with the Spirit dwelling inside of you, you in Christ, Christ in you, Jesus can say, look, here's the reality, Saul. When you mess with my people, you're messing with me. You think you're persecuting the Christians, you're actually persecuting me. Now this is a sobering thought for us. Maybe you have people who hate you because of your faith in Christ, your proclamation of the gospel. If that's the case, be comforted that you are not alone. That if someone persecutes you for your witness of Christ, they are also persecuting your Lord. He stands with you. The opposite is also true. How we as Christians treat each other is how we treat our Lord. And that should be a big check on us. Our attitudes, our thoughts, our words, our actions, our desires... Man, if this, if this is true, if, if how we treat another Christian is how we treat Jesus, then we should do some evaluating. I don't tend to live my life with that reality anywhere in front of me. 
But reading this passage this week is really heavy on me. Lord, what, what a truth. What a beautiful and encouraging truth, and what a hard and challenging truth on each side of that coin. Well, Jesus gives Saul instructions to go into Damascus and then wait for more instructions. What about the other dudes with Saul? Verse 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So such humiliation for Saul. He's the rising star of Judaism. He's, he's out with full authority, full power. He's on his mission. Nothing can stop him, and now he is helpless, blind. He should have been charging into Damascus, ready to drag off those who he considered to be heretics. Now he's led humbly by the arm into Damascus because he has been blinded. This is severely humbling for Saul. But we see here in this short section that Saul is not fighting the humiliation. He's actually working with it. He chooses to fast from all food and drink for three days. So he's knocked on his rear, he's humiliated, he's blinded, now he's intentionally weakening himself. He's building into this humility. He has rightly realized that he has been completely wrong in life. What will God do now? Now that Saul is broken and confused and scared and humbled, and what will God do? Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So we meet a new guy named Ananias. He's a disciple of Jesus. He's probably not a leader in the church, otherwise he would have been referred to that way. He's just some guy. Imagine you're just you're doing your thing. Maybe you're reading your Bible, you're, you're praying, you're working in the shop, whatever, and then Jesus says, I've got a job for you. How would that play out in your mind? If we loosened the text a little bit to help us understand this, we could say this. Jesus says, hey Ananias, it's me, Jesus. Yes, Lord, what can I do for you today? You know Straight Street? Yes, Lord, I know Straight Street. Good. You know Judas? Now that's not the Judas that betrayed Jesus. It's a common name. Be like John. Okay. You know Judas? Yes, Lord. I know Judas on Straight Street. Great. I want you to go to his house. You're going to meet someone there. There's a dude there from Tarsus. His name is Saul. And he's praying. Now at this point, Ananias is going to get a little confused because Saul is famous. But not in a good way. He's infamous. Everybody in Damascus in the church there knows about Saul, and they know that he has come with the authority to arrest them, beat them, drag them off to prison, and maybe even kill them. Jesus goes on. Saul has had a vision and has seen a man named Ananias come and lay hands on him to heal him of his blindness. And Ananias at that point is thinking, uh, Lord, my name is Ananias. Are you telling me that you want me to go to the one who wants to murder me and pray for him? 
and restore his sight, to be a blessing to the man who has come to kill me and all of my fellow believers. He has the papers. He's got the authority. We know why he's here, Lord. How could this possibly be your plan? What will Ananias do with this job? Will he obey? Will he do the dangerous, counterintuitive thing that Jesus is asking him to do? Will he risk his life to help the person who wants to destroy him? It's the way of Jesus, though, isn't it? Who gave his life to save the lives of those who destroyed him. We would say, oh Lord, how can you ask us to do this? And Jesus would say, because I have done it for you, I can ask you to do it. So what does Ananias do? Does he obey right away? I wish we could say he did, but he doesn't. Instead, he argues with Jesus. You might think, well, that is a risky thing to do. But look how Jesus responds. Verse 13. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Jesus, don't you know, because I know, don't you know who this man is? And don't you know that he has come here to destroy your people? Don't you care about your people? Don't you care about me as one of your people? Why would you put me on this mission? Won't you protect me? How can you send me to do this thing? Do you know that Jesus can handle your questions? He can handle your accusations? He can handle your anger, your frustration? He is big enough to deal with anything you have against him. There's nothing that you can do to scare him away. There's no rage that you can show him, no, uh, nothing you can scream at him that will surprise him. Jesus is bigger than all of that. This has been a hard few months for me. Church stuff has been hard. Family stuff, Owen, has been hard. Found out last week that the nurse that normally comes Monday through Friday is not going to be able to come and help us for a few months because she's going to have to deal with some medical stuff. So it got harder this week. Sometimes, Owen's been crying for the last six days. Sometimes I want to say, God, were you not paying attention when you pulled all of this plan together? Right? Or when, when Owen was a six-week-old, when he suffered whatever it was that caused the brain injury that has made his life so hard. Lord, why didn't you intervene? And why did, why did you choose our family? Why can't you just make him stop crying so that my wife can sit in the service with him? Jesus can handle those kind of things and a whole lot more. Here's Ananias saying, don't you care, Lord? You're sending me into the lion's den. Are you beaten down or worn out? Do you have 
kids with special needs that make you think that God was asleep at the wheel when he was forming them? His broken relationship or heartbreaking situations or something at work or a marriage falling apart? Is all that stuff just weighing on you and you just want to scream at him and say, aren't you paying attention, Lord? Jesus is big enough to handle those challenges. I don't expect him to take your hardships away, though. Ananias is not able to convince Jesus to change his plan. Ananias is still sent on the mission to find the most dangerous person he could possibly imagine and to be a blessing to him. God is under no obligation to explain to Ananias anything. He can just say, go, and Ananias should go. But in gentleness and mercy and grace, Jesus gives Ananias a glimpse into what is going on. All right, Ananias, I'll humor you. I'll tell you a little bit about what's happening. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go, for he is, my, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, that means the non-Jewish world, and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, depending on if you came from a a flavor of Christianity that falls really heavily on the idea of of free will and it's your choice, this may be a disconcerting passage to you because this passage speaks very clearly of the sovereignty of God. It is God choosing Saul while Saul is still an enemy of God. God's not saying, hey, I need need a good missionary. Anybody out there willing to be a good missionary? Saul doesn't volunteer. In the sovereign, ruling over everything plan of God, God chooses Saul, doesn't wait for Saul, goes after him, and completely changes his life without even asking him. The God of the Bible is sovereign over all of this. He refers to Saul as a chosen instrument. Who did the choosing? Whose instrument is Saul? God chose him. And Saul is God's instrument. God is going is to play him like a violin. Or he's going to use him as a chisel or a hammer or Socket set. Russell's got about a million tools. Russell, if you had to choose only one tool as your favorite, what would be your favorite tool? What would? Three-eighths ratchet. Okay. Were you going to say the same thing? This torque wrench. Okay. What about a tractor? Tractor could be a tool. That'd be a good tool to have. Side by side? Yeah. So Saul's a tool chosen by God to accomplish a certain work. He's a chosen instrument. I would not have picked Saul, right? If I was Jesus and Saul was doing his thing, I would have just struck him dead instead of having a conversation with him and doing the whole blinding thing and, and all this. Just squash him like a bug. But Jesus has a different plan for Saul. I'm so thankful for that. And there's that last little part there. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, this is not punishment. 
This is not retribution. This is not revenge. Like, Saul, you made my people miserable. Therefore, I'm going to make you miserable. That is not what is happening. All of the punishment that Saul's sin deserved was taken by Jesus on the cross, just like all of our punishment for the sins that we have committed was also taken by Jesus on the cross. God is not saying, I'm going to make you pay, Saul. He's saying, instead, I'm going to invite you into a life that mirrors my life of sacrifice and suffering on behalf of others. Years later, then Paul would write to the church in Corinth that he helped plant, and he would talk about the hardships that he's experienced so far in his life. He would experience more after this, but here's what he says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 28. This is a short summary of some of what Saul, Paul, has gone through since Jesus turned his life outside. With countless beatings and, other, and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Who gets shipwrecked three times in their life? I mean, really. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, this, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Aren't you glad that your life doesn't look like that? But that is what Jesus is calling Saul to in this moment. Saul doesn't, he doesn't have any idea that's what he's getting into. But Saul would look back later as Paul and he would say, I am so thankful that Jesus chose me to go through all of that. That I got to walk in obedience with him through suffering and be identified with Jesus in that. If you're going to walk in obedience to Jesus, you should expect hardship. Jesus actually said that. So listen to these words from Jesus himself to his best friends, the guys closest to him. Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Thank you, Jesus. That's very considerate of you, right? So be wise as serpent and as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. Father his child, and child will arise against parents and have them put to death. Even families get torn apart. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, if you think he's just saying this to these guys, that was a lot of specific stuff about them. But look at how Jesus ends this. He kind of blows it open to just general followers of him in, in, in general. A disciple, so that's me, to you if you're a disciple of Jesus, is not 
above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master, like in the sense of suffering. That's what he's talking about. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, which is an old Israel way of saying Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? So if Jesus is the head of our household, the family of, of Jesus, and the enemies of Jesus called him Satan, how do you expect to be treated as a child in that household? So do you have people who hate you? Do you have people who are mistreating you or slandering you? Think they're actually doing the work of God like Saul? Fighting against you, Jesus said that would happen. Take comfort. If they have called Jesus Satan, don't be surprised. They say terrible things about you too. I know that doesn't make it easier, but take comfort. Be encouraged by the fact that Jesus has gone through it, and even more than that, Jesus continues to go through it because... When you are hated for his name's sake, when you are persecuted for his name's sake, so is he, as we saw with Saul. Go back to Acts 9. Ananias heads out of the house. He's going to Straight Street. He's going to find Judas. Straight Street still exists in Damascus 2,000 years later. There's a picture of what it would look like today. It's actually now a big outdoor bazaar with a cover over it. You can go buy all kinds of stuff there. Now, the way civilization works is when you build new stuff, you tear down the old stuff, tamp it flat, and build new stuff on top of it. That's not how we do it today, but that's how it was done then. So if you went to Straight Street today, you would not be walking on the same surface that Saul was walking on or that Ananias was walking on. But the Roman road is there, but you'd have to dig down 16 feet to get to where that Roman road is. It just gets built up over those 2,000 years. But it's the same location, same straight line, still called Straight Street. Verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you were going to look at those few sentences there, and you were going to say, I wonder what Nick's favorite word in that collection of words is you think it would be? What's the word that really stood out to me as I was going through that? Brother. Bonus points for you, Nick. Brother. Ananias has heard what Jesus has said and has changed his mind about Saul. He no longer sees Saul as an enemy. He no longer sees Saul as a threat. He sees Saul as a brother. He recognizes that Jesus has claimed Saul as his own, has rescued him, has taken him from the enemy's camp and moved him into his camp. They are now brothers. And he walks in, and the first thing he says is, Brother Saul. Not, hey, I know you came to murder me, but I'm, Jesus had a talk with me, and I guess i got to come pray for you. So, Brother Saul. This is the reality of the family of God. If you are in Christ, you have millions of brothers around the world right now, brothers and sisters in Christ. St. Ananias, probably with a, 
a trembling voice trying to sound strong, probably trembling hands. He approaches his would-be arrester, and he puts his hands on him, and he prays for him, and he asks that his sight would be restored, and huge scales fall off of his eyes, and he then adds this blessing of be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if Jesus has saved Saul already, the Spirit's living inside of him. But we have different levels of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And this, this moment, this, this praying for Saul is a commissioning. It's, a, it's a, a welcoming Saul into his new life and sending him out in his new life. He said, be filled with the Spirit. Overflow with the Spirit. Be controlled by the Spirit. The Spirit's going to lead you on adventures you cannot possibly imagine. It's going to be hard, but the Spirit will fill you and lead you. He's being sent off right then from this humble moment in this humble little house. Saul would begin his journey to turn the Roman world upside down. Verse 18 and 19. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. He rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened, and for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. So the scales from the eyes thing is kind of weird, right? But notice the first thing that he does, he is baptized. That's beautiful. He doesn't wait. He publicly identifies himself as a disciple of Jesus. That's what he does in that baptism. And it's, and it's symbolic. It doesn't save him. He's already been saved. God has already rescued him and claimed him, stamped him as his own, filled him with the Spirit. But just like when we practice baptism, it doesn't save you. It's a, it's a picture of what's already happened inside of you with Jesus saving you. Saul, when he goes down into the water, it's as though he's being buried with Jesus. He comes up, he's being raised to new life symbolically, like Jesus rose from the dead. That's the first thing he does. Another disciple of Jesus has recognized him as a brother. He responds by saying, okay, where's the water? Let's go get baptized. If Jesus has saved you and you've not yet submitted to baptism since being saved, let me encourage you. It's the way of obedience. You want to talk about it? I'm eager to talk with you about it. Notice Saul's even baptized before he eats anything. He hasn't eaten or drink in three days, right? He's hungry, but he wants so much to publicly identify with Jesus that it's the first thing he does. Passage ends today with the simple statement that he hangs out in Damascus with the disciples. And, and can you imagine as the rumor spreads around the church, Saul is now one of us. Yes, that's Saul. Yeah, the one who is coming to arrest us and take us away. He's been baptized in everything. And he, he's no longer snarling and breathing out the threats and the murder. He's actually a pretty nice guy. I kind of like him. He tells good jokes. Come see, meet Saul. And hang out for a few days. So I wonder, what, what should we take away from this? Just like many of the passages in the book of Acts, this is a descriptive passage. It tells us what happened. It doesn't tell us what we should do. It's not prescriptive. So is there anything that we should do based on our understanding of this? What kind of takeaways? I would say there are two main takeaways. First, I would say, ask yourself, 
are you converted? Because we need, to, we need to realize and embrace the fundamental truth of Christianity that nobody is born a Christian, nobody, is, is, uh, nobody becomes a Christian on accident or by osmosis, by being in a Christian family, you know, raised in a Christian home, being in a Christian church. Nobody simply becomes a Christian without conversion. If you are in Christ, you were dead, and now you're alive. You were an enemy of God, even if you didn't think yourself that way. You were an enemy of God, and now you are a child of God. You are fundamentally changed. I think of when I was in eighth grade, and I first heard and understood the message of the gospel, and I went home that night, and in the quiet loneliness in my room by myself, I trusted Christ for salvation. And I went from death to life. I was converted. It was nowhere near as dramatic as what we just read here in Saul's story, but probably none of us in this room have a story that's even close to that dramatic. It doesn't have to be a dramatic conversion. But if you are unconverted, you are not a Christian. Really important to understand. There's no shame in saying, I, I, don't, I don't think I really am. Right? That's just being honest. In fact, everybody who is converted at some point, had to get to the point where they said, I'm not converted. But I'd like to know more about that. Now, there is shame in just kind of faking it, pretending, hoping that you've been good enough, you've been around church long enough, or you've got the right last name, or whatever it is, hope, hoping that you're good enough. That's a dead end. There is no faking it till you make it. Christianity. There's only surrender and conversion as an act of God, not as your own act, but as an act of God, a conversion for you. So are you are you converted? Not are you religious, not are you good, not are you moral or spiritual or in the habit of going to church or any of those things, but are you converted? Were you dead in your sin and are you alive in Christ? And the second thing, God doesn't save everyone. But God can save anyone. If God can save Saul, the baddest dude, the biggest enemy of Christianity in those first few months, if he can save Saul, he can save anybody. So if you think you've done way, way too much and there's no hope for you, you are not as bad as Saul. Or flip it around. If you've got somebody that you look at and you think, he is too far gone, she is hopeless. There's no way that God could save that person. The story of Saul would argue against that. He doesn't, he doesn't save everybody, but nobody is too far gone. You, you, could, you could be as evil as Saul. I can't imagine any of you guys are, but you could be as evil as Saul, and today you could humble yourself, and you could come and say, Lord, I have been your enemy I have been a fool. I have hated you. I have hated your people. I have worked for evil. It's just oozed out of me. And will you forgive me? I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that you died on the cross to take away my sin. Please make me a new creation today. And amazingly, he's like, yeah, that's a great, great way to come to me. I've already chosen you anyway, so let's go. You are now mine. Heaven is going to be full of surprises. 
you and I are going to meet people in heaven. We're going to think, how did you get in here? Because I remember you, and uh, I think you snuck in through the back gate or something, right? And then there are going to be other people that are thinking the same thing about us, right? Because it's not about how good you are or your track record or anything. It's about whether or not Jesus has saved you and converted you. But we're not going to have time for all of those how did you get into here questions anyway because we're going to be so absorbed with the worship of Jesus when we see him for who he is, when we realize that he is the only one worthy of our attention, worthy of our praise, glory, and honor. That this whole Saul story, this amazing conversion and the work that he's going to do through the rest of the book of Acts, the fact that he has saved you, given you a job to do in your life, all of that is just tiny compared to seeing Jesus for who he is. We know he's worthy. We, we know that he's the reigning king of the universe, and yet when we see him, when we worship together in heaven, that's, it's just going to completely absorb us. And yeah, we'll be surprised it's about who's in there. But it'll be mostly about Jesus. So, as amazing as the story of Saul is, we're going to wrap up our service now focused in on this, this idea of Jesus as worthy of our praise. So the team's going to come forward, and uh, we're going to sing that great song, Is He Worthy? And uh, I just pray that God would work in this song, stirring in your hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story of Saul. Thank you for Luke who recorded for us. Lord, I look, I look forward to the coming weeks as we see you use Saul, then named Paul in such amazing ways. Lord, I pray that he'd use us as a church and as individuals in ways that impact this world. Lord, for those of us who are, are already yours, give us courage to, to live for your mission, for your glory. Give us the, the courage and the strength and the, the wisdom that we need to tell other people about you. Lord, for those who are here or who are listening and they're not yet yours, Lord, may they hear clearly the invitation today that you can, you can forgive and you can save anyone. Lord, if you're calling them to repentance and faith, would you give them the gift of that repentance and faith that they may exercise it today. And even today, step from death into life into your kingdom so that one day we can stand with them around the throne and sing about how worthy you are. In Jesus' name.